Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 551 of the podcast and it is Friday the 14th of May 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to James Blatch, who many of you will know from the self-publishing show and the self-publishing formula courses. And we talk about the particular challenges of writing and publishing your first novel, even if you've been embedded in the indie author community for years (laughs) and you should know what you're doing. In fact, in your brain, you think you do know what you're doing. And then in the process of actually doing it, you do still learn some lessons. And this is going to be inevitable in all of our author journeys. You know, we can read all the books, do all the courses, but you still actually have to do it in order to learn. And inevitably, some things go wrong, but that is part of life. And also, we talk about what your definition of success can be realistically with a first self-published novel and managing your time across multiple businesses. So that is coming up in the interview segment. In publishing news, well, I attended the online Audio Publishers Association conference this week and I went to a couple of interesting sessions. One of, and this is just a couple of the takeaways, uh, I like to go along to these industry events and, and hear what people are talking about. There was a big discussion on the crossover between podcasts and audiobooks and how the line lines are overlapping. They are merging, in fact. And there's also rising enthusiasm because what this is meaning is there is a monetization model around podcast apps now with subscription and also direct sales of audiobooks to customers through a basically like a private link that you can use within your podcast app. So what's happening is there are uh, podcast platforms that are now delivering audiobooks. There are audiobook platforms that have podcasts on. And there was a, a sort of big discussion on how they are merging. And a lot of people who listen to podcasts listen to audiobooks. So that is a good thing. I think it's, I've been talking about the expansion of audio for years, but what we're starting to get is more and more tools that allow us to create different products and also monetize in different ways. This was also reported in The Verge this week as Slate magazine launched their own audiobook store where audiobooks can be purchased and then listened to in existing podcast apps. So I see this so as another example of a direct sale. And uh, last year uh, I went to some conferences and, and What's interesting is that publishers are now starting to sell audiobooks direct much more than they ever did with ebooks. And this is fascinating to me because I feel like ebooks have been around properly mainstream for a decade. And yet publishers are now with audio saying, well, we should sell this direct. And they never really did that with ebooks. So I feel like there's an, an embracing of audio in a way that there never was. Now, maybe it's because we're a decade on and the technology is so much better. But I think this is going to see the splintering of the specific app model. I already do this. I actually listen to audio in multiple different apps. And I think that customers will be much more comfortable to buy direct if they know they they don't need another app. So, you know, if Spotify or 
Apple Music or whatever is your Apple podcast is your podcast app or Google, whatever your podcast app is. If you can get a link, if you can buy an audiobook and get a link and then listen just in your favorite app, that's going to really, really help. So this is sort of private RSS feeds to be a bit more technical. And I think this option is going to be available to us as individual authors by the end of the year. And I think it will help break the dominance of these uh, bigger apps. So yeah, very interesting in terms of audio development. What's also interesting is I went, I attended the same conference online last year. And uh, last year, there was very much this negativity around the uh, subscription model, around things like Spotify. But now, Everyone seemed not just resigned to it, everyone seemed more positive about it. And uh, one of the quotes is from someone on, on a panel, the audience is driving this and you have to put content in the way of listeners wherever they are. So you have to be everywhere, especially on the apps where people already listen to music. And they specifically mentioned Spotify and YouTube. And of course, I put this podcast on YouTube. Hello, YouTube listeners. <laughs> so they also said money. Monetization is not an audience problem. It's our problem. And I really think that is so important because and it's the same with you know physical books, ebooks, whatever. It's not our yeah, it, it is our problem. Readers will find books to read in whatever format they want. There is no problem finding books, <laughs> that's for sure. The problem and the problem of making money out of those books is is our problem. And I, I think that was really good too, because so many people are like, oh, well, it's just not fair that this happens or this website doesn't pay enough. And well, you know, go where the audience is. And as we've talked about many times, you need your multiple streams of income and you have to consider some of this to be content marketing. Having your audio available on some of these platforms or your ebooks is a way of getting people into your ecosystem and then some of them will become real fans and will definitely spend money at some point. So they did talk about reinventing formats around podcastifying audiobooks, creatively expanding the format and kind of the merging. So sonically rich audiobooks was the phrase from uh, Pushkin, uh, who do Malcolm Gladwell's audiobooks, for example. And they did an audio first uh, book, audiobook recently, which was really interesting. So adding the kind of sound effects that people are now used to with podcasts, you know, very high production podcasts, obviously, not this one. <laughs> uh, and putting those into audiobooks, which was interesting. Another thing I wanted to mention was that several sessions mentioned the growth of the Spanish language audio market in the USA in particular for podcasting and audiobooks and how there is just not enough content for Spanish language audio. So if you are a Spanish language speaker and you're in the US or you're wherever you are and you're kind of Spanish is applicable for the US, this might be a good time to start a podcast or get some more audiobook content out. They definitely said they're looking for new voices in the Spanish language market. So I think that's interesting. Again, it feels like we're always, as Jeff Bezos says, day one, there's always stuff going on. And I was actually reflecting on this the other day about how 
there was a stagnation, you know, 2019, we had stagnated, I think the industry had stagnated. And then what the pandemic has done is really kicked everything up a gear again. And we're getting new tools seemingly emerging every single week right now. It's, it's, it's like an explosion of creativity starting to move into the tools that we can use. And uh, on this topic, I read a report this week from Creative Industries. The music industry body BPI released a report on 10 trends for for music's next decade. And as ever, with the crossover of apps between music, podcasting, audiobooks, and also just digital in general, I thought this was a good thing to read. And it mirrors things we're seeing in the indie author space. So first of all, they really emphasised direct-to-fan sales. So the independent creator selling direct to customers. And of course, many of us are now selling direct to readers and that there are more ways to do this so it becomes easier and more seamless to connect with fans and readers and listeners and get paid for it. So I thought that was really encouraging. Uh, they, you know, the rise and rise of the creator economy with the supporting uh, tools that we need in order to do this, to produce work to monetize and manage micro creative businesses, which is, yeah, I I like being a creative micro business. <laughs> uh, they also obviously talked about social audio. So, you know, Clubhouse started this, I think, but now it's moving into Facebook and Twitter and all these different things. And finally, the use of smart speakers and assistants to make voice and sound ever more present and accessible. And of course, off the back of the pandemic, where people are moving away from touch screens to voice activation, this is definitely uh, accelerated as well. And of course, NFTs and digital collectibles, they see this as a key aspect of musicians next decade. And I'm going to do another show on NFTs. I did cover it uh, last month on the blockchain uh, episode, but I'm going to do a separate one just on NFTs and what that might um, offer authors. Uh, They also had a chapter on the potential of AI, quote, it could be the most powerful tool that we have in the music industry, talking about adaptive music, automated video creation and advertising, royalty tracking and more. Another quote, AI is a tool, not a weapon. It's going to give us back time to be creative and reshape our business and focus on what matters. And as you know, this is my side of the uh, AI discussion, which is, yes, it's a tool. And as I discussed with Ash Fontana, Uh, And he said it's leverage. It's like a big lever. So our independent micro businesses can be can make even more of an impact by using these tools. So, yeah, very exciting. As ever, links in the show notes. You can always go to thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast and uh, check out the links to everything I talk about. I also wanted to just remind you that uh, Amazon is now printing paperbacks in Australia. And if you are on KDP and you're using KDP print, you do need to update your prices. So they did send an email round. You would have got your email. And I realised that a lot of people are, I saw some comments and 
in a Facebook group where people are like, oh, why would you bother updating? Okay, you you up, you bother updating because Australia reads books and you can make some money. <laughs> and if you don't update your prices, then what I found, because I went through, I spent about two hours it took me to do my whole backlist. And essentially I, uh, and it was quite good because I adjusted some other prices too while I was in there. But it was, uh, they had defaulted to essentially make me between zero and sort of five cents per book. (laughs) So I went in and made sure I was making at least two Aussie dollars, between two and three Aussie dollars per book profit uh, is what I like to make. Um, So yeah, definitely go in and update your prices. And um, if you are on Ingram, you already they already have been printing in Australia for years. So, but you do need to still do your KDP print prices and uh, yeah, go in and do that and uh, buy me a coffee or a gin with your Aussie profit at some point for reminding you. So in my personal update this week, I want to start by acknowledging Joel Friedlander, who died last week after a battle with cancer. He was 73. I first met Joel way back when I started out blogging and podcasting in 2008-2009. We did the same blogging course with Yarrow Starak, who's been on the show a couple of times, and we both started content marketing at the same time, blogging about writing and self-publishing. And so I met Joel, yeah, way back in the beginning, and he was so patient with me. He had so much knowledge in the publishing industry, and he never had any judgment towards the whole self-publishing thing, and I felt very welcomed into the industry by Joel at a time when things were very different really and it was not acceptable to self-publish really back in 2008-2009. So yeah, he was very welcoming and we were friends on uh, on Twitter first and then um, he designed the first cover for my book Pentecost which I later rewrote and rebranded as Stone of Fire but uh, there are videos of Joel helping early me through doing that cover design and uh, he was a designer he was a, a publisher and he's been on this show multiple times over the years we've done webinars together we guest blogged on each other's sites the last time he was on the podcast was April 2018 episode 373 on how to produce a premium journal. And that was actually a great interview. And uh, I actually was listening to a bit of it, which is quite, it's quite weird when someone dies and you've got video of them. But uh, there's going to be lots of of me out there when I die eventually. But uh, yeah, in talking to Joel about premium journal, he saved me so much time and money because I was going to do a journal for the Creative Pen audience. But talking to Joel really helped me decide against it. <laughs> but it's a great, a great interview. Um, we only met once in person in 2017 when we had lunch in San Francisco. And I'm grateful that I got to give him a hug in person. Uh, and uh, I wanted to honour him in our thoughts as he I know he's helped so many of us. I've seen many people on Twitter and Facebook saying how much he helped them. Uh, but I also want this to be a reminder, again, as ever, memento mori. Remember, we will die. We will all die. And we want to think about what will happen after our deaths. And Joel did a great job of estate planning from the look of it. Uh, He sold the book designer before he died and uh, made sure his assets were managed for his family. 
So make sure to at least write your last letter, as advised by Matt Buckman in episode on estate planning, which uh, I'll link in the show notes. Think about how you want your estate managed. And if you have a lot of intellectual property assets, a lot of books, consider what you want to happen to those. And it's always good to reflect on this. And uh, yeah, I think. Anyway, thank you, Joel. Also, off the back of episode 546 on Wide for the Win with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, many of you have emailed about it because we had a bit of a banter. And at one point I was like, oh, you know, maybe we should talk about being a relaxed author or maybe we could do a book on that. (laughs) So many of you have emailed and tweeted about this off-the-cuff comment that Mark and I have decided to co-write The Relaxed Author, which is up now for pre-order on the various ebook stores. And we're putting it out for 18th of September, as we actually need to write it. <laughs> but we've, we're going to write it in quite a relaxed way as well. We're, we're going get to get on Zoom and record a couple of hours of going through the material and to keep our voices in it. And uh, this will be a different way of co-writing for me but yeah about time I did something with Mark we've been friends for years so uh, now we'll do some business I'm also going to use the well I already have put up the pre-order through Drafted Digital with payment splitting uh, which is great because it means the money is automatically split for the at least the ebooks and the paperback and obviously we're going to do various other things too but yeah. Anyway, check out the relaxed author on your favourite store, and I'll talk about that more as the, as we get into that. I've also been writing more of the shadow book, and I got I fell down a rabbit hole on another short story idea, <laughs> which is distracting me. Uh, so I'm I kind of yeah I might have written a couple of thousand words on that too, even though I say I don't start a project before finishing another but officially I haven't started writing Day of the Martyr I'm waiting for the Thomas Beckett exhibition in London in June uh, before I start writing so I feel like ah, fair enough I'll get another short story done Also, I wanted to give a book recommendation. I'm listening to The Premonition by Michael Lewis, who is a fantastic narrative nonfiction writer. Really, this book is a masterclass in narrative nonfiction storytelling. It is. It is about the pandemic, but I just, I I wish... I had this book earlier in the pandemic for those many reasons. I'm listening to it on audio and it's like a thriller. I mean, it really is. It's fascinating, but his characters are brilliant. Yeah, anyway, I wanted to recommend it because Michael Lewis really is a masterclass in this stuff. This week, I have also done some new photos. So I did some headshots here in person in Bath with a local photographer. And I also did some in my home with my book stack and doing researchy pictures and things with a remote photographer. Now, uh, this is fantastic. We used used the Shutter app, which was invented in the second lockdown and allows the f- a photographer to take control of your phone. So you can do a photo shoot using your phone in your own home and the photographer can work remotely, which is, again, like I was talking about, what has happened in the last year is all this acceleration and development of tools that can help people do their job in a more productive way from afar. So remote viewing tools. And my photographer was amazing. I will share some of the photos and the details once they're ready. But I also wanted to remind people. So again, I've been doing this for a long time. And my last headshot photos were, I think, like 2013. So almost a decade, like eight years ago, whatever. 
And I, I was thinking, yeah, my, my photos look like I'm in my 30s, but I'm in my 40s, mid 40s now. So I, ha- I needed some new headshots. So here's a question for you this week. Do you have up to date professional photos for your website, social media and the back of your books? Remember, we are doubling down on being human in this age of technology and images help people to see you are real and a professional photographer can really help you uh, get these shots. Like, don't ask your partner... And don't, you know, the selfie can be fine, but working with a professional photographer can really make a difference and they can just get some great shots that you wouldn't have got on your own. So, yeah, I, I definitely felt like it was time and I'd been, I, I had to wait for my post lockdown haircut and dye the grey out of my hair. So <laughs> that's why I was waiting. But uh, anyway, I wanted to remind you about that. And I know, like, none of us love photos of ourselves most of us don't enjoy that whole process but to me it is very important to have my face and my smile out there in the world so you know I am real and this is not the AI voice double this is really me And also in useful stuff, remember, uh, you only have a week left to get the writing story bundle at storybundle.com forward slash writing, which contains nine fantastic ebooks. And of course, some exclusive books are tips about the film and TV industry from Chris Rush, crowdfunding your fiction by Lauren Coleman, who's done a lot of successful Kickstarters, how to write a novel in half a month by Dean Wesley Smith, plus an introduction to social media marketing, uh, working with libraries and bookstores, 30-day novel, cash flow for creators, how to write a conference proposal, which many of us will be getting into, my own Your Author Business Plan, and a course on dealing with toxic people. So you can get the ebook bundle for a limited time at storybundle.com forward slash writing, and you'll get the ebooks and you can read on whatever device you prefer. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. L.E. Meerman said, loved uh, the interview with Gail, got the book halfway through the interview. And also a comment from Dan, who said, loved this dialogue, teasing out the fine points from Gail's book, which I bought before finishing the podcast. (laughs) So two of you bought the book before the interview even finished, which is hilarious. Dan says, why so hasty? Because every point from the beginning rang true to my current work in progress. The happy surprise was discovering how much of my plot fits the heroine's journey without conscious awareness that I was doing so. I had never heard the term before today. That's brilliant. Uh, Podcasts really do sell books, folks. (laughs) Melanie says, uh, thank you for an enlightening discussion that reveals my debut novel follows a structure I knew nothing about. Ancient knowledge returns. Like we said, you'll see it everywhere now. And Vera Brooke said, the cover of Gail's book is phenomenal. And judging by the interview you did, the content of the book is too. I can't wait to dive in. And finally, thanks to Kristen, who sent a lovely picture with her new book for children, a happy, proud smile. And in fact, when I was doing this photo shoot this week in my house with the book stack, (laughs) my my photographer was like, "Okay, you need to. uh, She's like, how did you write so many books? It must have taken you ages. And she's like, right, you need to put your arms on it and have that proud look on your face. So I hope we caught that. And um, yeah, everyone needs a book stack photo. (laughs) 
Right, today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, which, as you will hear, is a very appropriate partner today, as James and I talk about some of the things that can go wrong when you don't check your manuscripts multiple times in the process. Pro Writing Aid is writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. It is a tool that helps fix and improve our manuscripts. And in fact, I use it several times in my editing process. After I finish my self-edits, I run the whole thing through Pro Writing Aid on Scrivener. And before sending it to my editor, I want my editor f- to focus on the big stuff, not fixing line issues. Then, after I've done all my revisions, I always use ProWritingAid again before sending to a human proofreader. It's like another set of expert eyes on the process. So why should you even consider writing software? Some people say, well, you should just read all the grammar rules and you should never use software. You should just know it all by heart. Well, in fact, even if you do know all of this stuff by heart and uh, just love all of that stuff, you never see the issues in your own work, as James and I discussed. You can read the same paragraph and just not see the issues. Uh, so even if you know the rules. So Pro Writing A can help you improve by finding the things you need to fix, like passive voice, which is always an issue for writers, sentence length variation and complexity, adverbs, repeated words, commas, which is my own personal nemesis, and typos for the specific type of English you use. For example, if you're uh, in British English like me and you're writing in American English, it can really help. My mum, who is in her mid-70s and writes as Penny Appleton, is pretty tech-phobic, but uh, she loves pro-writing aid and just fell in love with it. Uh, She uses a lot of dictation and is a very enthusiastic user of exclamation marks. (laughs) So she runs everything through Pro Writing Aid and it has really, really helped. Plus, if you are a word nerd, check out the Word Explorer, which goes way beyond a thesaurus. So all of these things, oh, plus it integrates with Scrivener so you can run your whole manuscript through it, which is why I switched to Pro Writing Aid because it is the best tool for long form content. And if you write in Scrivener, it just is fantastic. So check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, prowritingaid.com forward slash J-O-A-N-N-A, Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time is sponsored by my wonderful patrons and uh, that you are all just fantastic for supporting the show. And it makes such a difference to me to know this income is coming in every month to support the time that I spend uh, on doing this. Thanks to new patrons this week, Deanna Keehy, Angela Woods, Jane Brown, Julie Nichols and Scott. And of course, thanks to everyone who's been supporting for many years. You can support the show for just a couple of dollars or euros or GBP or Canadian dollars uh, a month, uh, less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. And you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which has a private RSS feed. So you can check out how that might work for audiobooks. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. James Blatch is the co-founder of Self Publishing Formula, Fuse Books, Hello Books, and the co-host of The Self Publishing Show. He's also now a fiction author with historical military thriller Final Flight. So welcome to the show, James. 
Hey, Joe, I was just saying this is like self-publishing royalty. I've made it. I can look you in the eye now. <laughs> when we meet, I can look you in the eye and say, yes, I am also a published author. Uh, yes. And finally, <laughs> and we're going to talk about your journey as we go through the interview. But first up, I mean, a lot of people have, have heard your voice. They've met you at events, but you had a life before self-publishing. And I wanted you to tell us a bit more about your background in journalism and also your connections with the military, sort of the background to why you wanted to write this novel. Yeah, I mean, they are connected. I, I joined, I think I had a Long story short, a fairly disrupted time at school because of the military. Actually, my dad was an IF pilot and just happened to get to that point where he was posted. They didn't really know what to do with him, I think, when he stopped flying and he sort of was posted everywhere over a four-year period. It happened to be my primary school year. So I had four moves of primary school in the six years, which was very disruptive for me. And I never really settled at school as a result of that. And so I fell into a career I didn't want, which was computing, but really wanted to be a journalist and also became, as I grew older, became quite passionate about the military because of my father's career, which I knew virtually nothing about when I was a kid because he never talked about it and I never saw him. He flew, you know, he, he flew his last plane before I was born. So I joined the BBC and quickly found military stuff as a niche that would do well for me in that environment. The newsroom's not overly stocked, I have to say, with people who know a lot about the military and classically will show, you know, the wrong aircraft when they pick a picture out or you know <laughs> and I was the nerd I was the like the geek boy and the very quick it works well for you if you have a niche in that environment because you very quickly become the sort of in-house expert at something and I also found that I could live my life vicariously I perhaps should have joined the RAF when I was younger but I missed that opportunity but this way I was in the squadrons I was in the building enjoying the banter they quite liked having me around I liked being there I went to the Arctic Circle with them I went to the Middle East for the Gulf War I went to Kosovo and covered that I flew in a Harrier and a Jaguar and I did all of that stuff without having to go to initial officer training for a year and then three years that I probably wouldn't have passed of, of selection to be a pilot so so I had a I had that going for me at the BBC I did lots of other stuff as well you know cats up trees and council meetings and, and court cases and crime and all the things that you have to do but I as much as possible covered the military and I don't I people often ask me if I miss my BBC days I honestly don't apart from those bits where I lived on board HMS Invincible the British aircraft carrier as we went through to the Gulf and that was you know living on board and reporting from there was something that was really special for me and I do miss that those little bits but then when it came to writing this book, which was before I, well, I knew Mark Dawson, but I didn't really know him as an author. I worked alongside Mark and John Dyer at the British Board of Film Classification. And I started writing this book in 2010. And this story sort of fell out of me. And it, it really was about going back to that primary school era and being moved about and having a, having a father who, uh, you know, my dad lives down the road. He's 90 years old. But he is of a generation that were not demonstrative in their emotions by any stretch. In fact, he might be even a, a rather extreme example of that. And that's just how he is. And it was slightly odd to be brought up like that without the I love yous and the tactileness that I display with my children. And as I grew old, I think maybe all of us as we grow older start to wonder a little bit about where we came from, what shaped us. And this book was almost a fantasy novel where there's there's my father type character who is going down that route 
and has horrible experiences like my father did. He had friends die next to him, as was un- not uncommon, unfortunately, in the 60s and 50s REF. But he comes to this point where he's not going to put his head down and bury his emotions anymore and not think about things as a way of coping, which is what they did. And for understandable reasons, they had to get back in their aircraft the next day. They had to go to war potentially. But in my character, in my fantasy, has this choice to make and say, I'm not doing this anymore like this because something's going wrong and he's got a chance to buckway the system. And in doing so, has an opportunity to save himself and become somebody who is open with his emotions because he's learned the hard way that it doesn't work the other way around. So that's that's the theme to the novel. And I have to say somebody could read my novel and probably not read any of that theme in <laughs> into it, but that's how I that's how I came at the story from the beginning. Yeah, we should say you mentioned the word fantasy there, but it's not a fantasy novel. It's a made up version of your father's world as opposed to a fantasy novel, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. It's not a fantasy <laughs> novel. No, it is a 1966 quite authentically researched, um, fairly meticulously researched novel. There will be mistakes in there, I'm sure, from that era because I wasn't actually living and drinking scotch and so on. <laughs> Things I refer to are already being picked up by somebody. But yes, no, it's it's grounded in the real world. And it's a fantasy of a service brat, of a service child whose life could have turned out slightly differently. This is sounding like a bit of a sob story. I love my dad. And, you know, he is of his generation. His father fought in the First World War in the trenches. And his father came away from the First World War as a, as apparently a quite difficult and, and cantankerous man, which is not under, you know, it's completely understandable. I'm sure he would have been suffering from some level of PTSD. And as we now know, and my father was brought up by him, and then he had quite a rough time with with things happening to him. And so, but then I was I'm completely different. And my me and my wife often talk about us and our friends are so different with our children than our parents were with us. And that's I think what triggered my my story. Yeah. It's it's my fantasy, but not a fantasy. Yeah, exactly. Language is so important in the genre. <laughs> but so it's really interesting. So you mentioned 2010 there, you started to write this. And I feel like often our first book is the book of our heart. And, you mm. know, certainly the first few novels, uh, I think, are often things that have been bubbling up for many years for, for most of us. I, I think after you've written like 10 or 20 books, <laughs> you start mm. to do things for other reasons. But um, 2010, you started writing it. And we're recording this in spring 2021. So the process of writing this, what have been the challenges with writing, especially as, of course, you're now very well known in the self-publishing circuit. You meet a lot of authors and it's it's tough when you interview authors who've written a couple of hundred books like you do on SPF and you're like, OK, I'm, I'm writing my first one. So what were the particular challenges with writing that you found? It, it has been hilarious interviewing people who write a book every 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who's taken 11 years. But um, I mean, when I first wrote it, I I was like anybody off the streets who's never written a novel before, but would say to when they met a writer, oh, I've got a book in me. And the writer sort of glazes over a little bit because they hear this all the time. So I was that person. I just wrote this book. To be fair, I I did it in NaNoWriMo. I said 1st of November. I can tell you exactly what day I started, 1st of November 2010. And I continued it I got to the end of that that month mainly because my friend was producing a program on Radio 4 which is a network a national uh, BBC radio station in the UK and she wanted to interview me as it turned out in week three and at the end of week one I thought I can't do this it's really it's really hard but I thought I can't turn up on this to do this interview having given up so it kept me going actually it's probably the reason I got that finished so I got my 50,000 words done in November then spent about three or four months doing the other 
40, 50,000 words and got to the end, but it was a ramshackle mess, really. The semblance of the story was there, and that hasn't really changed. But I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I knew nothing about show, don't tell. I'd heard, perhaps heard people say it, but I had no real concept of what that meant. Um, and then it, I get, became despondent. I'm sure lots of people in that situation do. Didn't know how to really fix it. Didn't speak to any novelists. Never spoke to Mark about it, I don't think. And just it just went into a drawer or an electronic folder and gathered dust until something like 2016, when Mark said to me, that book you were writing at BBSC, why didn't you dust that down and, and, and have a go? But then I think what I did, Joe, was I started again from, a, even though I was interviewing people and starting to take on board some of these concepts, I didn't really properly research how to be a writer. I'm, I'm definitely somebody I've worked out, I've been thinking about this recently, who has to do things, make mistakes, redo them, and then possibly read about how to do it properly. I, I can't I can't sort of academically sit down and read something about how to write a novel before I'm doing it and then then do it without making mistakes or or, or do it in a better way. It's just I'm very much a trial and error person. So I wrote it twice, I think. I wrote a really short version of it where I cut out everything extraneous and it almost made no sense. It was gobbledygook. It just happened, things happened too quickly. And then I wrote a really long form wordy version of it where I put in italics what everyone was thinking at the end of every sentence. Oh, that's a very common new writer yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. And that that was the, the the big thing, big sort of learning point for me, I think, is is that of, of what not to include in the book. That's been the, the most difficult thing. It's been the biggest revelation. And it's been the thing I'm most excited about that finally I have got to a point working closely with, with Jenny Nash and Andrew Lowe, two editors, who've helped me really understand what to leave out, really understand how to write a scene so that the reader thinks at the end the things that you attempted to tell them to think. And it's difficult, but I'm excited about having got there. I'm very excited about novel two, having, you know, hopefully being able to start from a higher position of, of skill in terms of writing, if that's the right word. Mm. I think, I mean, you mentioned show, don't tell there in case people don't know. So I always say it's like writing, how are you, James? And James says, I'm angry, which is obviously telling, or, or you might have in your italics, I'm angry. <laughs> you know, as the, the character thinks, oh, I'm angry, instead of, for example, you slamming the door and walking out. Yeah. That is a, a classic example. But yes, yeah, so you mentioned they're working with editors. And I, I do feel like the, the biggest learning curves with fiction is that first novel. You do learn so much that helps you in the future. But that, that was the writing side. So what about the publishing side? Because you've mm. been working now with obviously Mark Dawson with the self-publishing formula. You've got Fuse books where you're actually publishing uh, other people's books. So you know a lot about this stuff. So did you find or have you found stuff doing publishing your own books that you've been like oh okay I knew that intellectually but I didn't know it really yeah that's a good question I mean I think the marketing point of view the covers the the, bl the blurb's been a bit of a public extended humiliation of me because I found it really difficult to write the blurb I think a lot of people do but I got there in the end and I knew what I was trying to do so I, I was grounded in in knowing where I needed to be with it and got there eventually the cover I was lucky to work with Stuart Bates where to go to the, for the right person to get a good cover the marketing kind of launch strategy I tinkered and I talked I did a lot of it on our podcast openly talking to Mark but I knew more perhaps than I let on about how to do that. I just wanted people to be there as we were making the decisions. 
The bit I learned about, I think, was to do with copy editing and proof editing, which I had no personal experience of, because even with Fuse books, as you say, we publish a couple of other authors. Those books come edited to us so far. We haven't had to go through that process. And I got the copy editing done and didn't get it properly proofed. So the first 10 days of the book, I think I probably changed it on Amazon about six times as we we stumbled across stuff. It was a mistake uh, I, I made and um, the copy editor wrongly thought it wouldn't need a proof edit because he'd been through it twice and he, he said in his words, very surprised there's any errors in there. Well, there were uh, probably about 35 um, errors <laughs> yeah, in there. Yeah, I always use a proofreader because yeah. there's always something else. <laughs> yes, and that was my big learn. I mean, the brain is that thing, right? It, it, it'll, you can't see it anymore. You can't see those problems when you're close to a script. And, and my brain finds it difficult to see them. My brain works really hard at making sense of stuff that may not be quite in the right order on this in the sentence. But I have one very good friend. He's actually a computer guy. But he said to me, he spotted something on page one. And I said, and he sort of joked about it. He said, oh, I'll let you off that. And I said, no, can you let me know what it is? And he then became meticulous at sending me everything. And he saw stuff, even when he sent me the sentence in a spreadsheet, I was reading it thinking, where's the error? And then it was blindingly obvious once I was gone word for word that there were two thirds in there or whatever. Yeah, you don't see that. So that's been a learning experience for me, that proofing, that polishing. And uh, I feel slightly embarrassed that I got that wrong. But uh, it was a kind of a new new thing for me. So I'm really, really hot on proofing the next one and, and using an ARC team, advanced reader team, to not just feedback on whether they think the book works, but actually for that level as well. That I don't know if you do that, Joe, that sort of final polish to pick out. So by the time it goes live on, on Kindle or wherever wide, it's as polished as possible. That was my big learning takeaway, I think. Mm, yeah, I use ProWriting several times in the process before I send it to my normal story editor. And then after I've done all my changes, then I send it to a human as well. So I have ProWriting Aid and a human do a final proofread. Yeah. So that's how I do it. But I only send to advanced readers after I'm pretty much done and it's already formatted for print and all of that type of thing. So, right. uh, But I think it doesn't matter what the process is. There need, just needs to be a process. Uh, and it's, it's so funny, isn't it? Because sometimes I think, oh, is it worth paying a proofreader? a couple of hundred dollars and then it's like yes it is yep. because even if it's one thing that would just really really annoy me <laughs> yes it is really annoying and pro writing aid the one of the problem there's a limit to your right to use that human at the end because there's a limit to the algorithms and they i think uh, andrew Lowe called them reading errors so you'll only really see them reading because they're completely spelled correctly words and it might be, I think the first one in the book was uh, he could be forgiven for thinking so-and-so. And it was forgiving for thinking instead of forgiven for thinking, mm. which is not something yeah. pro-writing aid is going to pick up. It's a, it's a correctly spelt word and it's not quite clever enough to know it doesn't quite work well, in that I sense. I don't know. It's, it, it, it improves all the time. It's built on machine learning algorithms and I've found it to be, the reason I use both a human and pro-writing aid is because I find they both pick up different things. Mm. So a, a tip for people listening is, yes, use a proofreader. <laughs> yeah. But um, in terms of marketing then, given that you've only got one book and we were just saying before we started recording you know one of the biggest pieces of advice we always say is marketing can be difficult when you only have one book so tell us what is your definition of success with this one book and how are you doing this launch when you're really just starting out even though you're quite well known <laughs> yeah so the slight complicating factor which is a lovely complicating factor to have is I have a very supportive community around me many of whom have bought the book so my first couple of days and pre-order looked 
more bigger than they should have been for somebody in my position. But I think I'm a little bit away from that now and looking into more sort of normality. First of all, I'm not expecting to make money from this book. Okay. I mean, it's obviously if it turns into the Da Vinci Code, then that's different, but I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting to get people familiar with my name, get people liking the book, potentially joining my mailing list and being there for when book two comes out and then book three afterwards for me to be able to market to, whether that's building an audience using Facebook ads so that I can retarget them on that or whether they've actually joined my mailing list or simply just noted that they enjoyed that book and I don't have any particular way of reaching them apart from they might seek me out in the future or they'll be there to respond. So I'm not expecting, so I need, my aim for this book is to get some visibility for me as an author. So from that point of view, I've actually started spending money on ads on this one book. And you're quite right. We would probably say to people, what you should be doing now is writing your next book and your your books two, three, and four and planning those for a commercially successful future. But I'm happy with the first three days, I think, away from that initial run of spending 40 to 50 pounds on paid ads each day and selling 40 to 45 pounds worth of books. I've lost about five or six pounds a day over three days. So I've spent, let's say, 20 quid I've lost in three days but I'm selling 20 books a day to people who are reading my book for the first time. Obviously, I've got to have some faith that they're going to enjoy the book and potentially be interested in in the next one. But I that's my aim at the moment. And I think I've got a bit of a head start because I, I'm pretty good at Facebook ads now. I'm, you know, I run them successfully for Fuse. And I've done some really, I mean, Mark said to me, he saw one of my ads and he described it as a killer ad that would have made him click and buy the book. Awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's good. So I've got that start and I'm using that to my advantage. I will see next week or right? early days, Joe, if the sales fall away, there's no point in me spending, you know, losing 40 or 50 pounds a day, um, but five or six, or if I can optimize those campaigns to the break even point, that's my definition of success is, is the book simply getting into readers' hands, even if it's not generating any income at the stage. Yeah, and I think that's very sensible and that one of the biggest issues, I think, with indie authors who see a lot of success by people who've got a lot of books is they think, oh, I will be able to make money with my first book and I'll be able to leave my job and and all this stuff. And and it's just not true. Mm. But I did want to circle back. I mean, obviously, again, you've been in the self-publishing world for, what, what six, seven years now, I want to say? Yeah, um, I guess 2015, I think. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. Yeah, so six years, but your background in t- is in traditional media. I mean, the BBC, you have a lot of credibility, you know, especially with your military background. You actually have a lot of the credibility and presumably the contacts where if you'd wanted to go the traditional route, you could have. So what what have been your thoughts in that area? Did you consider it? And from your, I guess, your traditional media days, have you seen the conversation change somewhat? I think I... I definitely could have. I've got a couple of friends who are traditionally published, Little Brown and other other big, you know, Hatchet um, owned imprints. And and I've met a few people, right? I know the guys at a couple of the guys who are commissioning editors at the Trads. And I definitely could have put myself out a little bit like that, but I didn't want to. I want. I think partly it's the control issue for me. I want to be in control of this book. I want to. I want to test what I know about marketing, test what I can do in terms of selling books. I back myself, I think, a bit more than traditional publishing for a lower list author. Now, 
if my writing was really good, if loads of people come back to me and say, God, you know, this book is amazing, James. This is the best book I've read. And, and they're people I believe rather than my close friends. Then potentially that I might change because there's a point as a limit to how much I could do with one book or two books. And maybe traditional publishing does offer something on that front that put them in airports and, and bookshops, which I can't do very easily. But it's not something on, that I really wanted at the moment. I would, I think, reluctantly let go of it. I, I don't think I would be embarrassed about it. I think people have said to me, oh, you can't traditionally publish this, can you? Because you're the co-presenter of the self-publishing show. But we've always said what's best for you is best for you. And we've never been anti-trad. I mean, Mark has a few traditional contracts mixed in with his self-publishing uh, stuff. So um, I wouldn't rule it out, but I want I want to be in control. I, I see myself in a few years' time. I'm really excited about writing the next few books. I'm, I'm 35,000 words in, a bit more actually, to book two, and really enjoying it and really thinking about what book three is going to be about. And I want to be one of the people I talk to, like you, Joe, who produces books and has a series and markets them. And whether I, th- I think I can back myself, hopefully, to be able to make the sort of money that might pay my mortgage you know, for the last 10 years of the mortgage existing. And I don't think that would be possible traditionally published unless you have super success. Mm, it's so hard to say. I And I just want to say I agree with you in terms of what people think we think about mm-hmm. self-publishing. I mean, people say to me as well all the time, oh, well, you could never... Do, go the traditional route and I'm like why not it's, mm. you know and I also have foreign rights deals and things like that and we're not anti-traditional publishing we're business people who make a decision about the books and uh, and it's funny I have a lot of friends in traditional publishing and every time I finish a book I think about it and every time I make a decision based on uh, how it feels at the time <laughs> And this is the way I've gone so far. But that, as you say, it doesn't preclude it changing in the future. And and I think that what has changed, like 2015, when you first came in, certainly 20 sort of 2008, when I started, it was very, very negative about self-publishing. By 2015, it was pretty accepted, you know, more accepted. And now it's not entirely accepted, but there's still a lot of traditionally published authors also self-publish. And so it is a much more hybrid world than it used to be. But yeah, it's funny that people said that to you. Yeah. I did a a little bit of press releasing into the traditional world, a few local radio stations. I've had two invites for interview. I've done one of them so far. And I don't expect these to be, Mark's been on the you know on the sofa on bbc one breakfast and he said it doesn't sell books it's mm-hmm. a fun thing to do but it's not a, a, you know i wouldn't put a lot of money into a pr company or a lot of time and effort into it but one of the things i was interested in is whether they would pick up that it was self-published for a start because i use vivid dog as my company name it's published by them at a glance that could just be a publishing company who knows i mean i often struggle to tell when i look on amazon and see who's published a book sometimes not easy to work out whether it's self-published and if they do if that does come up whether they're going to go down the uh slightly sympathetic oh you couldn't get a deal route which is as you say where we were a couple of years ago but actually the first interview I've done he started talking about self-publishing started asking some quite interesting questions and then said to him at the end of the interview can you come back and just talk about Mm self-publishing um and I think that's interesting so I think that conversation is starting to change don't think we're there yet. I think there will still be people, particularly close to the traditional industry, who will say self-publishing is unleashing unreadable books on us. And oh, they've been saying that for years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Now they say, oh, AI is going to unleash uh, unreadable books on us. And it's like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But don't worry. People always say that stuff and they assume that readers are stupid in yes. some way. And it's very everyone... disrespectful to readers. It is, isn't totally. It? It's totally disrespectful. And we're readers. Everyone listening is a reader. Like we read so many more books than we write. And we are not stupid. You know, even if there's a brilliant cover, if you open a book or you click one page in, you know whether mm. you're going to like that book or not. And yeah, so I have no fear of, of any of that. And that's one of those, um, only the people that we decide to write a book or publish a book should be allowed. And that just makes me so mad. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And it's a slightly odd thing if you think about it when if in that that particular, I mean, first of all, I think there are lots of people in traditional publishing who aren't like this. They they love books. They understand genre fiction is where the money is, and they love the voracious readers of romance and and thrillers. But there are also people who enjoy the lunches and the kudos of publishing a big name or the kudos of publishing a book that's really thought provoking and are slightly sniffy about genre fiction and other fiction. But I often think when they they say, "Well, this book's not very good." My feeling is I don't care what you think. And and the truth is you shouldn't care what you think because mm. the only people who matter are readers. And if readers enjoy that, if that's what they want to read, and they, they'll, I've got friends who rip through series, they'll find you, they'll find Mark, they'll read all 25 books and move on to the next person. And that's what they enjoy doing. And who the hell are we to say, well, they're not very good books because they're self-published. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous, silly thing to, to say or a position to be in. It is. And also, at the end of the day, it's about taste. You know, I absolutely respect the romance writers. I think they're amazing, but I don't read romance. It's not a genre I enjoy reading, but that's about taste. It's not about quality. I also don't enjoy massive literary fiction like The Goldfinch. It's like you have your taste and everyone has their taste. And what what is, is annoying is when people say, oh, that's not very good. And what they yes. mean is that's not to my taste. And I think this is very important for us all to, to remember. But um, I did want to come back on something that uh, I think many people would like to know, which is you do a lot of things. You work very hard obviously you and the guys on self-publishing formula you've now got fuse books which is publishing some uh authors you've got hello books which we're going to come back to you and you also co-host the self-publishing show and <laughs> you've now got your own fiction career and you have a family and i think you have dogs and you have a life i mean like all these things so how do you manage your time and how i, I guess yeah how do you balance all of that because it's the biggest thing for writers is how do they manage the day job the fiction the family that everything yeah sorry one thing you missed out that you don't know about is that we're starting a business called 747 dining me and another friend uh, and we're going to serve meals on an abandoned 747 uh, at the end of august that's a new business so just to <laughs> throw into the mix yeah that's seriously <laughs> it's absolutely crazy i don't know why i'm doing it i am probably a bit too busy at the moment i think uh, I think things are okay. Lockdown's been fine because there's been nothing else to do but spend long hours in my garden office. But it does require very full days for me. I'm I'm a little bit of a workaholic, I think, and I don't know if that's negative or positive for me, but I quite enjoy, you know, Saturday morning was quiet in the house and I got up and did two or three hours work, just, you know, accounts and stuff. So that this morning was quite nice because I did all that on Saturday and I did some optimization of Facebook ads campaigns, sort of above and beyond the, the value-added stuff. But I do feel I'm probably too busy uh, at the moment, and I need to work 
better at outsourcing what can be profitably outsourced. You can't just give people stuff you don't like doing. I think when you use VAs and assistants, it's got to be financially sensible. So I need to look at stuff that I can I can shell out a little bit more. I don't I I'm I don't know how to answer this because I'm actually not very good at managing my time. I sit in front of my desk, I have my usual kind of list and whiteboard. I'm not that organized. And I tend to spend half the time getting on top of things and being okay and half the time firefighting. And I probably could be better at that. But at the same time, Joe, I'll down tools and go and play golf. I always prioritize going out, walking. I love what you like walking. I like walking. I cycle. I run with a friend. Um, William's starting to play cricket in the summer. Uh, and I'll very rarely say I'm too busy to go and do that. So I'm pretty good at prioritizing that, even if it does mean I've got to come back and do a bit more work in the evening. Yeah, well, I think that's the point. It, the point is there you've said, okay, these are the things I, I don't say no to. And then, I mean, I'm the same. If it's like at the moment, it, this lock, winter lockdown has been pretty hellish mm. <laughs> in many, many ways. But I have worked so hard because like you, there's been nothing else to do. And But now I'm like, the weather's gorgeous. And every chance I get, I'm going to be outside or walking or doing something around my books and travel side that, you know, going out and seeing things now we we're not so constrained so I think it's also about this word balance is also difficult maybe there will never be balance maybe it's just the different phases of your creative life and your family life you have to prioritize different things and even in the year like like I said about the weather right now I'm prioritizing being outside whereas in January that really wasn't a priority (laughs) Yeah, uh, no, I agree. I think having some of those rules, in fact, I think I get some of this from you, Joe, the way you talk about this is what I want to do now, so this is what I'm going to do. And I think you're very good at that. And I do. If Jill comes in, my wife comes in and says, do you want to, you know, she walks, we've got two dogs now. Do you want to walk the dog? I've made a policy to myself that I always say yes, unless Mm. literally I'm like doing this interview or something. But I just, because it's very easy to say no, I know I'm, I'm working. So I think making those sort of decisions, that's been helpful. I didn't used to be like that. I would very much be the martyr. No, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm working. Particularly my BBC days. That was ridiculous. I mean, that was, that was a, a toxic atmosphere where you were congratulated for working yourself ill. I'm really pleased I'm out of that. And that, that is changing. Perhaps I'm getting I think a bit that old. was the 90s as well, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was the 90s. And yeah, it was, it was like the 80s on steroids. Uh, so yeah, that wasn't great. And, you know, most of my friends are, uh, either, either still there and say it's slightly better than it was or they've out of it and washed up from it so yeah mm, yeah I think that's I think that's right and and like you said about the walk with your wife is interesting because I do the same with my husband and it's mental health and it's physical mm. health and it's marriage maintenance yeah. <laughs> which you know and these are it's bonding with the dog it's getting some fresh air it, to me these the very simple act of going for a walk at lunchtime is uh, I think maybe it's a change we've made in the pandemic that we can access the knowledge that this is important <laughs> that perhaps we didn't before because we were so busy and we've got to hold on to that you know once life becomes I guess more normal whatever whatever that may be like once we're traveling again and because I know you guys have put travel on the cards for later this year right you're, you're yeah. going to go to Nink and, and as soon as all that comes back in again it changes the dynamic doesn't it so so how are you going to make sure you you know because you are going to get busier how are you going to manage mm. that in the future uh again don't know <laughs> it's the, the honest answer to that I absolutely love traveling there and I love those business Me too. Trips. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I say the word holiday far too often when I'm talking to my family about what we're doing in the autumn. I'm going to be on holiday. In, no, no, I'm, I'm on a business trip in Florida. <laughs> but I absolutely love that. Jill knows that I love it. And I think I think she and Joe, which is John Dyer's wife, are, are looking forward to us being back out there because we've got itchy feet a little bit about that. So I find that something to look forward to and part of my mental health. And um, we've got so many good friends out there as well now. It's, that's a positive thing. It, it does get a little bit uh, busy, but I'd just be better, I think, at working up to it, not leaving myself too much to do while we're out there. And, yeah. uh, and we're supportive to each other. Mark knows that I really enjoy that. And he goes out for a more minimum period of time. He's got slightly more, his, his children are younger. It's a little bit more difficult for him to go away, but he's very happy for us to spend longer out there. But I think, Going back to what you said about lockdown. So at the very at the beginning of lockdown, this time last year, we suddenly got confined to barracks and we got confined to our homes. It was very weird. Now we've got a bit of a garden, a huge one. We've got a nice park uh, on our doorstep. Although in those early days, you weren't even supposed to be out there unless it was very minimal period. But wasn't there was also something quite exciting about being in the house with your family. Uh, it's like the sort of thing that you you want to do, but you're too busy to do for the previous 10 years, suddenly out of nowhere forced on you. And we were playing board games. We had little contests. We decided to do some film, like lots of people did the Marvel films in order and all that stuff. I really enjoyed that. And I felt that was was telling me something that we'd lost a little bit in the busyness. Mm, yeah, the silver linings of the pandemic, I think we will all reflect on as well as the difficult times. And I think as a collective experience, we're still learning. I mean, obviously, it's not over yet. But let's get back to business. And you t- you mentioned Mark there and John and the team, you and the team have recently launched hellobooks.com. So I wondered if you would tell us a bit more about that and how it fits into the book promotion ecosystem. Yeah, so Hello Books is uh, it's it is very much a book bub, a free booksy, bargain booksy type list service. We just felt, we talked about this for a couple of years and we felt we love book bub. You know, it's a great company. They've done brilliantly and they're all lovely people. But what I find is interesting, my wife reads a lot, right? She'll go on holiday and read a book every day. She'll read 10, 10 books on, her, on holiday and she just sits down during the day and reads. She's never heard of book bub. And if you talk to your friends who are voracious readers, very I, I, I'm yet to meet somebody outside of self-publishing who's heard of BookBub, which is in not England. that. In England, yes, in England. So maybe they're bigger in America. But it'd be interesting to have that conversation in America as well. And it just my inkling was, my hunch was that the market penetration was very small. The, the possibilities there, I felt there was scope for another very well run, very well organised. Uh, type service that would differentiate itself in small ways and we're yet to perhaps fully discover how we're going to differentiate ourselves we've spent a year building up to launch and we've just got it going now but it is a list service so people will join they'll choose their genres on a friday they'll receive uh emails with with discounted or free books and uh, i think it looks a very clean fresh website Uh, john dyer's been the man really behind that Uh, it's quite hard work quite a lot of it's manual at the moment in the background choosing the books selecting emailing authors because the price isn't set and all the rest of it but we will gradually automate more and more of that but that's yeah the idea is that it's a business it is a business opportunity joe we just think that there's a market there that we can exploit to use business terminology and we don't need the investment because we're going to invest probably a hundred thousand pounds into it but spf has done well enough that it can support that we're not putting six figures in in one go it's going to be you know every month we'll put a bit more into it uh, it's going to make its own money as well uh, during that 
build up period. We won't look to make a profit at least for a year out of it. But that's a good opportunity we've got, I think, to start a new business in a new sector. Well, a related sector, but a new sort of sector of self-publishing for us or publishing. So, yeah, that's the idea. And it's going quite well at the moment. I'd like it to be a little bit more automated, as I said. Um, Fridays are quite busy at the moment, too busy because I want to play golf. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely need. I mean, that's definitely something you could profitably outsource, as you Mm. mentioned, which, I mean, it's great that you guys, I'm so impressed with you guys with your, uh, but I feel like the word entrepreneur uh, I do use it for myself, but I'm not someone who wants to run other businesses. Like I'm very happy with my solopreneur is probably the better word mm. for me. You know, it's just me now. My husband's gone back to pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> so yeah. it's just me. And But what you guys doing uh, are doing is fantastic in terms of growing these. And we all need more book promotion opportunities. So I've used hellobooks.com and I definitely sold some books. So just to encourage people to go check that out. Is it open to everyone to apply for? Or is it just still in beta? No, it's open to everyone now. We are bunching up the genres a bit at the moment as we build the list. So uh, I think we need to probably get to 60 to somewhere between 60 and 100,000. We'll start splitting out the genres. So thrillers includes sort of harder nailed thrillers and cozy mysteries at the moment, uh, which is not ideal, but they go out together. And people on, in both those subgenres are finding some success. Romance has got quite a big block of of books so at the moment although you'll choose your little subgenre, there's only i think nine emails that go out that block them up but in some of those genres we're seeing every week people are reporting good results uh, we're struggling a little bit on some of the more niche stuff so erotica we don't get so many submissions on that and lgbtq we haven't had a lot of submissions we had a few at the beginning but yeah it's open to everyone and hopefully some of those niche genres so we could definitely do with some applications i have to say for romance and thrillers we have six months worth of applications at the minute so that's that's because of your audience as well i think the existing audience but um what about non-fiction because this is what frustrates me is that there is very little promotional opportunity on these email lists for non-fiction that is split out in more of a sensible manner yeah, it's the same thing, Joe. So at the moment we have nonfiction and it's a block. And nonfiction is so disparate, right? It covers you know his, history through to oh, it's, it's, self-help it's and yeah. So it's crazy that we put them together at the moment, but we do because the list simply isn't big enough to sustain those individually. But every reader who signs up tells us what subgenre they're after. So it's very it's, it's almost pressing buttons to split those out. And literally, we'll get to a week where we've got five. Uh, advice and self-help books and they will all go to people who specifically want those and we're close to that point now splitting those out we've only been running four weeks I think so Mm. um so they will it will get more granular I think it's probably the word as we go on Yes, well, I, th- I think the book promotion community is missing a trick with nonfiction. Uh, I've said this to a lot of the vendors as well. Like even Apple, their their store just doesn't split nonfiction down to a decent number of subcategories. And, uh, you know, nonfiction readers will generally pay higher prices. <laughs> So yeah. it's potentially got a lot a lot of lucrative readers in. But yeah, I definitely feel that's something I would like to see. So there you go. There's my wish list uh, that that, yeah. um, that is expanded over time. Right. We're, we're almost out of time. But is it OK to also ask you about Fuse books? Because I feel like a lot of indie authors would love someone to publish books for them. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of people would love you and Mark to publish their book and market them on Facebook. 
Facebook with and with ads and stuff. But I know Fuse Books is not uh, not like that. So I wondered if you would tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so Fuse Books is a, is an imprint, and we do publish uh, other authors. We've got two on our books at the moment in dialogue with two others and another series from on existing authors. We ha- we are a little bit overwhelmed with submissions, as all publishers always are. Uh, what is our remit here? Our remit here is only to take on a series of books where we are very confident we can at least double the profit. Because if we're not doubling the profit, it's not going to be worth it for the author because of the terms. So you have to be somebody who's ideally a brilliant author writing page-turning books who cannot market for toffee. That's our perfect person. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things we do when we talk to someone, we had a conversation recently with somebody who's done really well, really well with their books, and they wanted us to market them. and our conversation with them is a slightly odd one is instead of us rubbing our hands thinking, Oh, we're going to get all this money instantly because their books are selling is why on earth would you be handing these over to us? And we eventually got to the point where they, I think understood that and we, we're not going to take them on for that reason. So it is, it really is. It's got to be very clearly and ethically from our point of view in the interest of the author. And we don't ever want to be in a, a, gloomy situation where people could say well this is exploitation i mean and mark and i would just we've always said to people despite the contract we would simply hand the books back if it if we felt it wasn't it they're worth their while anymore but we have found some people so kerry donovan i'm sure he won't mind me saying was not great at marketing <laughs> i mean he's i think i think his series that we took on was making 17 pounds a day or $17 a day or something, profit. And we're now doing 200, this month will be £250 a day profit. Mm. Uh, it was 400 last month, but that's off the back of a book bub. But that's a dramatic change, demonstrably worth his while. He's now happy because he's obviously seeing a rise in income, but also just able to concentrate on writing books. So it's worked well for him. Uh, other authors I we've looked at, we felt, don't know how much we can do here. I think the other, the only other thing is I've been thinking about this a bit more, Joe, recently is is people who've got a big back catalogue who are getting old. Uh, I think that's probably going to be an area that Fuse and other imprints could probably help with. Is is you'll get to a point when you're probably in your seventies, you just don't want to be doing that anymore, even if you are making a profit. So for them, it's not us thinking can we do as well as your double what you're doing. We could say, well, we're going to take this over, so you don't have to anymore. And you understand that you're going to see a reduction in your income. But if we keep that going for 20 years longer, that will be definitely worth it in their long run. And of course, if they when they pass on, I say if they pass on, we all do at some point <laughs> yeah. pass on, we could continue to make money for their family. So I think that's an interesting area as well. It sounds slightly exploitative when I talk about it like that, but I think it's a genuine thing, actually, as people get older. Who oh, absolutely. Their own books. Yeah, it's not exploitative at all. It's the reason why there are a lot of literary agencies because they were off the back of a dead author estate, basically. Yeah. And this, or in fact, uh, I, uh, I've been talking about this with a couple of people for years. I've had people on the podcast talking about it, you know, in terms of what would it take for us to set up like a dead author agency? where because the one Dead Authors Society. Yeah, well, yeah, basically, because when many of us, obviously, we have our, we do our wills, we do our letters of intention for what happens uh, when we die. And yeah, who's 
who's going to run it? If you're an indie author, most of our partners are not going to be able to run the business. So I do think this is a an, a growth area with dead indie authors. I mean, yeah, you just have to you just have to laugh about it. But if you want to protect your estate after you die, these are things to think about. So I'm very excited to see what you guys do. And so that really the, the final question I have for you is: you started doing this five six years ago, and since then you've expanded into what four five. We haven't even talked about your self-publishing podcast, really. Um, so the self-publishing show podcast, I should say. And you've got the the fiction. So for you personally, James Blatch, what do you see yourself doing on your next five years, 10 years? What are you excited about? How are things going to change since they've changed so much uh, since you first joined the self-publishing uh, area? Honestly, I want this, I want 2021 to be a peak of how much I do. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need, need to scale down. I mean, the Hello, Hello Books does feel very busy. At the moment. the idea of Hello Books is it will run itself. And I'm deliberately doing a lot myself now because I need to understand it and make decisions about its strategy. But as soon as they're settled in, I'll hand some of that over. Uh, SPF. The thing about SPF is the longer we do it, these are the sort of online courses, the easier I think that becomes. You know, I sat down and did a module in two days this week on, on uh, dynamic creative ads and that I can do quite comfortably and easy. I think it's new ventures and new things I need to be saying no to probably in the future. I would like to do more writing. So gradually morph myself into somebody who relies on their writer or has writing as an income and does a little bit less in terms of the other stuff. Um, but having said all of that, Joe, I, I do enjoy being busy. I just, it's that you know it's that balanced word again it's that balance of just being over busy where it becomes stressful hate that don't want that and I think I'm probably on the bumping along the cusp of that where I am at the moment so yeah 2021 is the peak for busyness that's my you more, can hold more me golf. to this <laughs> more yeah, golf, more to golf. Come. golf is great I love golf it mixes walking with sport which I enjoy but you can hold me to this in 2022 and ask me how, how many companies I've got going. Yeah, exactly. Well, this um, 747 dining sounds fascinating. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get the links in the show notes. So where can people find you and everything you do online? Uh, well, self-publishing formula is, is selfpublishingformula.com and you'll find links to Mark's uh, teachings and my teachings there. We also host the self-publishing show on that platform we have a community on facebook if you search self-publishing formula and me uh, i'm jamesblatch.com uh, for a thrilling exciting how <laughs> told i sell my book i've got it here uh, a 1960s page turning thriller uh, and all that so yes that's where that's my writing home is jamesblatch.com fantastic thanks so much for your time james that was great loved it joe thank you So I hope you enjoyed the interview with James and that it's given you some insight into the fact that we all have to learn our own lessons. Sometimes you can hear all the podcast episodes and do all the courses and read all the books, but you will still learn by doing and that is okay. Next week, I'm talking to Patricia McLean about discovery writing, sometimes called pantsing. I am also a discovery writer, so we have a really good chat about craft and the weird ways that we all write. Plus, Pat was first published in the 1990s, so she has sustained a successful long-term career through, first of all, traditional publishing and then indie publishing. So she's got a real insight into sustaining a long-term career, which is always so important to talk to people who have been successful long term. And we talk about the joys of being a relatively unknown and happy six-figure author where writing comes first. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.